listeners to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Uh, I would like to announce off the uh, start of this episode that Troy and I are popping the cherries on new microphones today. We have got, we've invested in the Shure MV7. And this these, these were when we were talking to a guest uh, recently, Brian McLaren. He had one and we just completely went, oh my God, these sound amazing. And, you know, we had some good microphones before, but today... We have these super amazing quality studio microphones, some would say. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And I just want to stress that we did not use any of the Patreon money for these. These came straight out of our own pocket. So please don't feel, you know, those that are sponsoring us via Patreon that we we took your money for this. No, no, this came straight from our own pocket. But gee, they're nice microphones, aren't they, Brian? They are amazing. And I, and I feel... You know, that little bit more professional using these ones. And and sure, if anyone from Shaw, S-H-U-R-E, is listening, we would be happy to be sponsored by you. I mean, look, we wouldn't wouldn't uh, knock it back, that's for sure. But speaking of Patreon, let's have a bit of a chat about Patreon and, and how we've used it in the past and what we've used it for. As Troy said, we don't use it for anything for us. What we use it for is things like... Facebook campaigns. Um, I think we've used it maybe for a Twitter campaign once. Did we try Twitter? I think, I think we did. Yeah, we've used it for the Twitter campaign. We've used it for the Facebook campaigns, you know, just promotions and stuff. And we have used it for the sponsorship, not the sponsorship, excuse me, the subscription for uh, Podbean. We've used it for one year. Other other years we've paid for that straight out of our own pocket as well. Yeah, and, and you know, for people who aren't familiar with what Podbean does. Podbean is our basically our host site. It holds all our episodes because you've got to obviously pay for storage in the cloud. We use Podbean. It's about 100 bucks a year or something like that to store unlimited amount of episodes. So all of our episodes up until today and potentially going forward will be Podbean unless we find something better. Um, you know, a Facebook campaign, uh, they have been successful. And there's probably many of you listening right now that would have heard us through a Facebook campaign, heard of us, sorry, through a Facebook campaign. Or heard of us from someone else who heard through the Facebook campaign as well. That's it, Evangelism 101. But it, it is a way to obviously get the uh, message out around the podcast, what we're, we're doing. Sometimes we put one out that's specific to an episode. A lot of the time we put it out, just a broadcast one around the podcast. And you, you'll see those. They're, they're sponsored campaigns that uh, you that will pop up in your feed from other places and they pay. And they that is where the bulk of money goes. And it is fairly pricey. Facebook isn't one of the wealthiest on the planet uh, for no reason because they charge a bomb. But I guess what we wanted to do off the start of this episode was something that is slightly uncomfortable for us, probably uncomfortable for you, but is talk about we want to run a Facebook campaign and possibly Twitter, but Facebook's our primary driver. We want to really drive more people to the podcast for the primary reason that many of you are here. It's you've had shitty experiences with um, you know, faith communities in the past, you're, you're damaged by that um, or you're processing that and need needed somewhere to land to be able to help move forward with that. There's lots of people who don't know about it still. Again, this is a completely not-for-profit, so we're not driving any profit. We don't actually have any ads in our podcast, as you know. So 
we're not um, trying to do this to generate any profit. Yeah, the podcast isn't monetized is the, is the language to use. We, we don't make any money. There's no income coming directly from the podcast. You know, in spite of the fact that we've been number one in a lot of countries in the religion and the religion and spirituality categories, I think it's going to be hard for us to get any sponsors because we're a niche podcast and, you know, who's going to, you know, Coca-Cola aren't going to want to throw money at, you know, I was a teenage fundamentalist. So, so really what we're asking is this, we would really like people to just do a one-off. If you don't want to go as, as an ongoing sponsor in Patreon, that's fine. But if you want to come in, make a one-off sponsorship, one-off donation or whatever you want to call it, uh, tithes and offerings, there you go, just triggered you. If you want to do that, we will use that money for a Facebook campaign. We really want to do a great big one, great big Facebook or great big Twitter or great big Instagram or all of them and just get the word out because there are people just like you all over the world, people just like us that don't know about the podcast and would really benefit from being a part of it. When we first started this podcast, it wasn't to be some sort of social change agent. It wasn't at all. It was just sitting around having a chat, but this is what it's evolved into. And so we're at a point now where we're thinking, okay, let's promote. And, you know, we might promote the um, ABC Life Matters episode, get, get that out there so that people find out about us. Or maybe we'll just steer directly to individual episodes that we think are interesting or, as, you know, Brian was saying, sort of general ones. So we understand if you're triggering because we're asking for money, we get that. So please don't feel obliged and just let it go. If this is not for you, that's fine. But if you want to go in, become a regular Patreon sponsor, or even just do a one-off, make a donation and then withdraw all your details from Patreon, that's fine too. And we'll take that money and we will just get the word out that the, the podcast exists. Yeah, that's it. And, and I know I, even I'm sitting here going, oh, fucking hell, this is uncomfortable. But generally at, at, at cost, just, just for a basic Facebook campaign for about three days is about 100 bucks. Like it's it's quite – and even that's a very limited campaign. Yeah, that's very low numbers. You know, really, I mean, companies will pay tens of thousands in a day to run a real campaign, you know. So, yeah, we're certainly not spending a lot of money either. No, we're not. But, you know, we get that it might be uncomfortable. We, we felt it was time to have the conversation, you know, where – pretty much at uh, around about 60 episodes. So we're certainly maturing as a podcast and gone way beyond the expectations of of where we thought it would go. And here we are. We're sitting at a place where we're going, God, we are, we are making a change. You know, we're having so many people actually contact us and go, oh, my God, this stuff just resonated and I've used this Facebook community as a, as a therapeutic platform, but also listening to the podcast has been so cathartic because – I didn't realise that there were so many people who had the same experience. I felt isolated. I felt like I was a little bit nutty. We were all a little bit nutty. So that's the great thing. We can relate to each other and, and help process. So we won't bang on about it. We have for about six or seven minutes, but we will just leave it there. And um, if if you choose to, please, in the show notes, have a look. There's Linktree. You can go there. There is a link to Patreon in the Linktree. So... Thank you, good people, and thank you to our current sponsors. We've had a few that have been there since the early days, regular monthly contributions um, and also some one-offs that people have, have come in, and we really do appreciate that. I mean, it, it takes a lot for someone to go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to actually commit myself to a financial contribution to something, and we do 
incredibly appreciate the trust that you put in us. You give us your money and you trust that we're going to uh, use it in a way which is affecting change um, and the things that you intended it to be used for. So thank you. Yeah, so we're very grateful. And I think also the people that have come in to, to the podcast through through those sponsors as well, you know, we're, we're grateful on their behalf as well. So you want to tell us about today's episode, Brian? Yeah, I'll give it a crack. Today is, it, it's a little bit of a, um, you know, it's bits that we've, we've hit on the edge of before, but never had a dedicated episode, and that is spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare, how it stands now, is quite different to when Troy and I were in the Penty scene back in the day. And I guess we want to talk about what our experience was, but also touch on where it's evolved to now. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about this present darkness encapsulated it so well, didn't it? That the idea of this book called This Present Darkness, and we talked about that, I think, in episode three, I think it was, or episode four, somewhere around there, where we talked about demons and devils. But the idea that the world is controlled by the devil and his demons, and it was in this book, I think that was probably the most impactful and most powerful, you know, vehicle for the ideas around spiritual warfare for our day. Yeah, definitely. Peretti was... At a talking point a lot of the time, I know my mum, my mum loved Frank Peretti. My mum's a voracious reader. Um, she gobbled that stuff up because I think it really fed into, she was a, a young Christian, um, even though she was an older person, but she was a young Christian and, and saw this as, I guess, a bit of a basis for her faith that we were, we were you know, immersed in a war of, of good versus evil and it's you know it's that classic hollywood sort of stuff isn't it and uh, peretti really encapsulated the christian story within that within that battle for people's souls yeah indeed and it really the biblical justification is from ephesians six twelve, which talks about you know we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers and authorities and principalities or whatever it says i don't even remember the actual verse maybe you do brian but um basically the idea was that we as believers engage in this spiritual warfare this spiritual battle in our everyday lives through intercessory prayer and we tear down you know, and there were so many choruses and, and praise and worship songs, you know, um, you know, going up to the high places, tearing the devil's kingdom down, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there were. And, you know, it was lots of mantras that were repeated too around putting on your breastplate of righteousness. And, you know, it was, it was very not much around going to war and going to battle for Jesus, wasn't it? It was, but, it, but obviously it wasn't in the literal world or in the real world or it kind of it, it spilled out and we can talk about that in a minute but really it was about dealing with these demons and these devils that are floating around in the unseen realm so they're still there they're still having an influence on our lives but we we didn't necessarily see them with our with our with our human eyes brother we saw them with our spiritual eyes didn't we we did and look i, I think and we'll touch on this as the episode progresses but it, it was that way, but it's not that way now. And I think that we do see sometimes physical violence in the name of, of Jesus. We've seen that through, obviously, the Crusades and, and such, but we're seeing it in modern day, even if you look at the January 6th insurrection at the White House. That was very much, if you, you hear the stories of some of the people that led that, that were involved in that, that was very much a transference of a battle that was in the spiritual realm to 
the physical realm um, and people were storming the capital, some in the name of Jesus, because they thought that Trump was a bit of a saviour who was going to come and rescue them from whatever that may be, lots and lots of different things, um, certainly socialism because that's so evil. And, you know, I think it does does definitely get into the physical realm these days a lot more. So you know who did a really good summary of all this was El Hardy in her book Beyond Belief and she was one of our guests that we had uh, was it this season or yeah it was this season wasn't it we had El Hardy so she's amazing so if you haven't read her book or followed her on social media she's become a little bit of a a mainstream Pentecostal commentator hasn't she in a lot of ways but she sums up the whole spiritual warfare thing really really well in her book and she says according to C. Peter Wagner And C. Peter Wagner was this guy who was friends with John Wimber. They actually had a falling out later on. And I think he was at a theological college and he really brought a lot of credibility to this whole spiritual warfare thing. According to Wagner, she says, spiritual warfare comes in three forms. So let's note these three forms and then we'll come back and talk about them, Brian. So there's the ground level where people are fighting possession by demons. So that's our, you know, casting demons out of one another. And then there's the occult level, which sees them work towards domination through other religions and spiritual practices. So, you know, that's your your Buddhist demons and your Kerry Culkin magic shop demons and all those kinds of ones. And then there's the strategic level where the battleground is territorial spirits possessing either geographical places anywhere from a gay nightclub to a nation to the nation of Iran or institutions such as a progressive political party or the mainstream media. So he says, well, she says, I should say, for Wagner, who died in 2016, God rest his soul, strategic level spiritual warfare was the most important battle. So there's those three. And those three were definitely three that we engaged in, believed in, got right into. And I think we talked a lot about the first one in our Devil and Demons episode, which I think was episode three or something like that. Um, And that's where we really talked about the whole, you know, casting demons out of one another. But then we also talked about a little bit of that when we talked about going to the magic shop and praying against the, the magic shop or even, you know, praying against, I think in our speaking in tongues episode, you know, speaking in tongues against the Hare Krishnas um, because, you know, they have these other demons. But, but this third one, I think is going to be the focus of today in, in, a, in a big way, which is this territorial, governmental powers and principalities kind of thing. Yeah, and that really has become an enormous thing. And I think it definitely rose to prominence through Trump. It was definitely there before, but I think that that really brought it to a world stage. And certainly the rise of QAnon and the conspiracies um, that came along with QAnon definitely looked into it a little more, a bit more deeper, and you know, we hear about Pizzagate, and you know that the pizza shop that Hillary Clinton was running her Satan worshipping cabal and pedophilia ring from, and so that was very much around the specific pizza shop. And you know, you've, you can see a video on YouTube of the guy that goes in to bust that and finds that there is no basement apparently. So yeah, there, there was just an insane amount of conspiracies that, that came out through that time. And now it's, it's risen to prominence, but you're right. I think that the whole demon thing, 
even though you and I have spoken about, we, we definitely weren't in the depth of many of the people we spoke about in our demon episode, which would, you know, blame demons for speeding fines because they were pressing the accelerator down and all that sort of stuff or under the brake pedal so someone couldn't stop the car. You know, that, that was mild in comparison to what's happening now. We used to pray. That's what we would do. We would go in there and we would pray against things and then go out into the real world and see what happened rather than actually taking it into the real world and literally trying to tear down political leaders and and all that kind of stuff. They've sort of morphed it into the real world. And, you know, Elle Hardy talks about in her book that people are, you know, setting up militias and they believe themselves to be soldiers of Christ and all this. For us, it was all, it wasn't metaphorical in the sense, because we did think it was literal, but it wasn't of this world. And that's where it was different. I mean, you think about my episode on the Revival Centres, marching seven times around the Revival Centre building and giving a shout, believing that the spiritual walls were falling down. And even you said, well, the walls didn't fall down. I was like, no, brother, they were spiritual walls, remember? And and that was where we lived. And so the idea of spiritual warfare, as we're going to present it today, I do think that it's still very strong. You know, that this idea is still very, very strong in in Pentecostalism and in a lot of other sort of versions of Christianity as well. I don't think that the majority have taken it to the point that they're going to start militias and, and all that. That's definitely happening, and it's definitely even happening in Australia, um, at least to a point. Um, and, you know, as we know in America, it's rife. But this idea of, you know, prayer walking, spiritual mapping, all that, that's that's still going on. And that was going on with us in the 90s. It definitely was. But do you remember in the 90s too, um, I'm pretty sure it was Myanmar. There was the um, Karen and the Karenni people and it was around the border of Myanmar that you would get Christian militia who were going in there to protect the minority Christian people from the Muslim community there who they believe was oppressing the Christians. And it was a violent war. Like you would get largely American soldiers for Christ in there, fully kitted up as if they were in the middle of the bloody jungle in Vietnam and they were taking out these people that were oppressing the Christian minority. I remember seeing it and they these people were praised, like, even by Australians. I remember seeing videos in the early 90s around these people and, and they were definitely seen as soldiers for Christ. Talking about how it's manifesting in the Australian scene, there was an article on news.com.au from the twi- oh, sorry, 6th of April this year, 2022, and Gold Coast Mayor Tom Tate's spiritual advisor says the home of the arts had a d- demonic stronghold, right? So this is the Gold Coast is is a, a portion of Queensland. It's a it's sort of beach resorty kind of place. For those of you that aren't from Australia, it says here yeah, that the Gold Coast Mayor Tom Tate's spiritual advisor, so he's obviously some sort of penty, says she's in a spiritual battle to win back a venue from its demonic stronghold. So this is happening in Australian politics. So to say that it's only America is is just not quite true. Let me read you a little bit of it and I'll put the link in the show notes. But it says a Queensland mayor's spiritual advisor claims there's a demonic stronghold at an iconic Gold Coast venue where a spiritual battle continues. Sue Baines has been the spiritual advisor to Gold Coast Mayor Tom Tate for years and became the city's pastoral advisor in March. So here we have, Brian, 
they are actually setting up pastoral advisors. I don't know if she's on on staff or what. And she's claimed she's never prayed for her position, uh, but Mrs. Baines has supported the mayor and family since he was elected in 2012. Ms. Baines is an advocate for the Seven Mountains Mandate. So this is in Australia, uh, a demonist Christian movement based in the United States, yada, yada, yada. But in a recording of a religious service attended by both Mr. Tate and Ms. Baines in November, she revealed the Gold Coast's home of the arts had a demonic stronghold. According to the ABC, the spiritual advisor said she'd read on Google how the area surrounding it was the original gateway to surface paradise, meaning it was the place of control. It was the gate. Right, so in the Old Testament, they talk about the gates being the place, you know, which is a literal gate, of course, to a building. And those of you who know about spiritual, there's a quote from her: "Those of you who know about spiritual warfare understand about gateways." Yes. So I knew from that moment the enemy had a stronghold on the land and had been controlling the traffic flow, if you like, the spirit to and from surface paradise. Yada yada yada. I'll stop there. But there you go. I mean, this is actually a Queensland mayor who has got a spiritual advisor and they're doing spiritual warfare and he's obviously making policy decisions or political decisions based on this. So it is a real thing even in Australia. But I don't think this is where we were at, Brian, back when we were into this. No, we definitely weren't. It it was a tamer version of it. There was definitely, as you say, it was about praying it was about binding demons like you'd identify that there was a stronghold over something and you'd bind that demon and you'd loosen that demon you know that was how you prayed didn't you you're very much that was that intercessory prayer where you were going into battle on a spiritual realm but it was you know it was the unseen it was the unknown but now we're seeing an identification of physical sites as as you're talking about the gold coast i mean Look, the Gold Coast's got issues, there's no doubt, but I don't think it's a uh, demonic stronghold. But I remember it was spiritual warfare for us was about making way for the Great Commission. Yeah, definitely. Look, it, it was ushering in Christ, wasn't it? And it was, it was making sure that we, we won souls and we were definitely praying and we were in, in intercession and binding demons so it could make a pathway for us to be uh, the, the saver of souls and the bringer of souls to Jesus. So... Yeah, and and, th- and those of you that don't know, the Great Commission is Matthew 28, right, which is go into all the world, preach the gospel, yada, yada. And that was basically what we were trying to do. Um, and so the spiritual warfare was like we'd go in and pray and then we would go out later and preach the gospel or whatever. We would expect that we would do better because we've bound those demons, because we've, you know, released the angels or whatever it is that we used to do. And so we would advance the kingdom through intercessory prayer. That's what it was. Remember, it was intercessory prayer. And so some of these big evangelistic crusade types, like, do you remember Reinhard Bonnke? I do. The Great name. Great <laughs> name. No, he's German. He used to oh, go German. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. used to go to Africa. Yeah. Yeah. God will lose. You know, blah, 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 used to say. He was like that, yeah. He had like intercessory prayer teams. He was one of the first. I don't think even Billy Graham did that kind of stuff, right? And they had these intercessory prayer teams that would go out and they would make a way, you know, in in the spiritual realms. And then when Reinhard Bonnke would step out and preach, it was like he would just, you know, do amazing stuff because of all this intercessory prayer and because of all the anointing and all this. So the idea was that we were reaping souls, making decisions for Christ it wasn't that we were winning American Idol for Guy Sebastian or anything like that. That, was, that wasn't what we were about because 
our mission or our gospel, at least that we knew back in those days, Brian, was, you know, I guess classical Pentecostal, that the whole world was going bad, as L. Hardy says, and that Christians need to separate themselves from the world and the government structures. And Pentecostals weren't part of the worldly affairs. We were just hanging in there till the end and trying to get as many people make a decision for Christ as 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 they could. And as a matter of fact, we weren't even that interested in social issues either. It was just, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor, we wanted you to confess Jesus and get baptized and speak in tongues and come and join in us intercessory prayer meetings, yada, yada. That's it, another notch on the salvation post. You know, I remember about um, about one of your prayers back in the day when you were at your most passionate was that you would ask God. Go. What are you going to yeah. tell me? <laughs> you, you would I'm ask. I'm embarrassed already and you haven't said it. No, you shouldn't be because it was a word I definitely had to look up in the dictionary, but you, you would constantly ask God to release a garrison of angels around us. Do you remember that? And and um, it really, was, is that what I said? You did, you, I did. And I remember Troy, you you praying many times, asking for a garrison of angels. And I was just like, "Fucking hell, a garrison? What's that?" And it did t- take me a bit to to look it up. And I think I might have then used it a few times going forward. So thank you for that. But that was all about. That was very much around the. Th- the theme that you've just spoken about. It was protect us as we go out, forge the way ahead, make it a bit easier for us, soften people's hearts so when we go, they're more receptive to the message that we're going to bring them. Yeah, yeah, and but bind those demons that are, you know, confusing them and got them. Because we literally, and, you know, this is, it does spill into this idea of this personal demon stuff because we, we had that sort of idea that you know demons were either sitting on their shoulders or had their arms wrapped around their heads closing their minds you know all that kind of stuff and we 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 didn't see it as as allegorical as figurative we saw that as literal that there were there were demons that we couldn't see and and by the way do you remember there was that one going around that how did you swap demons or catch other people's demons through sex oh i do remember this actually so the more people you slept with the more it was like demons would like be a candle wick that you could touch the candle wick and they would like split and you would have you know so if you slept with some chick with all these demons or you slept with some dude with all these demons you would get all those demons right all of them could just jump across to you you know it's hilarious um so so people out there especially now that we're all just so sexually improper and you know sleeping with each other we're all covered in demons so we would pray against those demons even before we knew who the people we were going to be speaking to were yeah it's like the early 80s 90s pokemon go really wasn't it it was your, it was a physical way of collecting your demons yeah very cool yeah so you know could you could imagine if people could see it, it's like show me your demons before i sleep with you oh you got a nice <laughs> set of demons <laughs> it is um it is ridiculous isn't it i mean do you remember you know back in the the day um you know pe- there was lots of talk of, of people going you know a demon came in and had their way with me sexually last night and so there was you know it, that's how demons came and well pardon the pun um that's how, how ge- demons came in and um had sex with you i know so lucky yeah, I know. Especially when you haven't slept any, with anyone for 10 years or whatever, you know, as you're walking, you know, you're a born-again virgin, as they say. Uh, I mean, that would have been great. You know what I, I mean? I, absolutely. I was tempted to pray for succubus to come and visit me a few times, but never. I reckon happened. I had, I'm going to confess something, I reckon I had a couple of wet dreams and said it was a demon. But really, it was just my body going, just get that out. Come on. You're too old for this 
keeping it in shit. Um, but yeah, really, I'd, I think I had a couple and then, you know, would tell my friends, oh, the devil came last night and he tempted me. And uh, many times I think I tell people, you know, that I had had, you know, demons, you know, harass me in the middle of the night. And really I was just having sex dreams and losing my emissions or whatever they say. <laughs> Oh, funny. It was. Lots of, lots of emissions. So they didn't come. Lots of emissions, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Were you, were you on the, uh, the the emissions council at, <laughs> at uh, church? I was. I, I was praying for a garrison of angels to make sure that they gathered around to, to stop that. Take up an hat. emissions offering. <laughs> oh, that's. <laughs> I'm a little bit disturbed. I can see your. Sorry, you, people can't see your face, but you just had a moment. Come on, what do you want to say? No, no, it, no, I was just thinking of the, that band named 10CC. I only found out last week where they got their, you know, Dreadlock Holiday. Yeah, um, I know 10CC, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 10CC apparently is the amount of sperm that a man generally ejaculates. Cubic centimetres. Yeah, uh, not cubic centimetres, no, 10cc. That would be a lot, actually. 10cc would be a lot cubic centimetres. That that would be the emissions of a donkey back in Ezekiel (laughs) 2320. No, this is, it was, no, it's 10cc, which is the amount, syringes are measured in in cc. So um, I only found that out last week, and here I am, 50, in my 50s. So anyway, whatever. Yeah, well, here we are. And don't forget to donate to Patreon so we can get this podcast out there. <laughs> people people will be wrapped to hear about yeah, yeah, we're emissions. Talking all, about, all about semen and demons. All that rhymed. Oh, it's a semen oh, it's a semen and demon. demon. Yeah. We could have bound semen demons. Imagine how good that would have been in a prayer meeting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we, we come against the semen demon. We come against the semen demon. I'm semen the demon. <laughs> yeah. So, look, coming back to uh, away from semen and back to what we're trying to talk about is the the idea for us was we would pray and then we would go and we would reap souls, right? And and that's what it was all about. And and I I also want to stress that we saw praise and worship bringing the anointing and that would also break the devil's hold, right? So in essence these Christians well, we as Christians believe we did spiritual warfare when we sang and when we praised and worshipped. So, you know, Hillsong and and these other, and Bethel and these churches that are out there today, the music is not just about a good feeling. The music to them anyway is not just about having a good time and relating to people. They actually genuinely believe that when you sing and dance for Jesus, you are imitating an Old Testament idea where the... um the uh, musicians would lead the people into battle. And as, you know, Jeff Bullock said, you know, you would, the, the musicians would bring the anointing, whatever that means, I think is what he actually said. But they would lead the army, the Israelite army into battle. And so too, we believed that praise and worship was a really powerful way of binding the devil and bringing God. And so we didn't just pray we would oftentimes get into singing and dancing for Jesus, which is why oftentimes when we would go out in the street, Brian, with the street team, we would sing. We would sing praise and worship songs. We would raise our hands because we were there on location doing battle against the devil before we went out and handed out our tracks and told them that God loved them and we wanted to see them set free from the semen demon. (laughs) Well, 
Yes. I, I'm just sorry. I'm just sitting here thinking about street teams and going, fucking hell. I literally have heart palpitations when I think about going out publicly and, and witnessing. The closest, the closest I ever got to being confident around that was, I think, when I spoke about it in the, the missions trip that I did. We, we did some YWAM. Um, Dramas. Drama, drama training, and and we in the capital city where I lived, we we went out into the streets, into the city square, and performed. And I think because I was in character, I had probably a little bit more confidence to do it, even though it was just overtly Christian, um, the stuff that we were doing, and it was a little bit of uh, bit of mime, and there wasn't a great deal of of words, if any. So. The street witnessing, I, I just shudder. Anyway, I, I digress because it just, it does, it is genuinely one thing that triggers me because I just feel so deeply ashamed and embarrassed when I, when I was out there doing it. But even when I, I think back about it now. Yeah, well, I told you there's video of me somewhere in an ABC vault when they did that documentary you know, in the 90s, I can't remember what the name of the show was. Um, and you were in there too, actually, I know, because I, I can remember the video. You were actually in there too. And and we're singing and dancing and praying and speaking in tongues and doing all that we're doing. And so there is evidence out there that we that we did all this. And I know, I, I think I start, started to show my wife, my now wife, um, a, a bit of that video and she just got up and left the room because she was just like, nah, this is too much. But look, mate, one thing that stood out to me was, do you remember Yongi Cho? He was Paul Yongi Cho and then he became David Yongi Cho and then I think he became messed up in some sort of scandal and I don't I don't think he's even alive anymore. But he was the pastor of what was at that stage and possibly still is, the largest Christian church that has ever existed and that's in a place called Yoido in Seoul. Do you like that way I said that with a little bit of a Korean you, accent? Yeah, well, yeah. It's it's like you lived in Korea. It's as, it's as if I lived in Korea, correct? So he's in Yoido in Seoul, and hi to my friend Jacko who listens to the podcast, still lives in Seoul. And um, Yongi Cho wrote this book. I can't even remember what it was, but in the book he said, talking about this whole spiritual warfare thing, because remember they would talk about different demons have their thrones in different locations. And there's a bit in Revelation where it talks about, I can't remember the church, some church, and it says where Satan has his throne. And so from a spiritual warfare perspective, that's like, oh, wow, the devil actually has a throne somewhere. Now, whether the writer of Revelation just meant it's a really bad place um, or whether he literally meant the devil has a throne somewhere, who's to know? But the the Pentes and the Charismaniacs, we took that and said, okay, the devil has a throne somewhere. Yongi Cho said that Satan's throne was in Japan and he gave a lot of good reasons. He talked about, you know, all the false religions that are in Japan, the um, economic strength of Japan, um, and yet there's such a repressive culture, all this kind of stuff. And, And he made a really good case against why the devil's throne is in Japan. And he was Yongi Cho. I mean, like he, you know, anything that he said, you were certainly going to take notice of. Now, what happened for me is when I moved to Korea and I lived there, I started to find out Korea has had a very long and problematic history with Japan. For example, they were occupied twice in the 20th century by Japan. They had absolute atrocities. They stopped them from speaking their own language, made them dress like Japanese, totally oppressed them in in World War II, etc., and so for Yongi Cho to come along and say, 
that Satan has his throne in Japan was much like a modern Israeli coming along in the height of, well, no, not a modern Israeli, but say a Jewish person in the height of the, um, or just post-World War II or whatever, and saying that Satan has his throne in Germany. Because that's 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 how it was for them. They were oppressed. They were they were slaughtered. They were their women were raped. All this by the Japanese. And so when I was in Korea and I was deconstructing, I, I it it struck me. That's why he said this. He didn't actually have any real evidence that Satan's throne was in Japan. He was just and and in fairness to the Koreans, right? But it's still a kind of racism, albeit a justified version of racism. He hates Japan. And so Yongi Cho turns around and says, Satan has his throne in Japan. And then we in the West don't know where he's coming from, what's going on, why he would even dare say this. But all of a sudden, it's justifying, it's giving evidence to everybody in his church to spiritually despise the Japanese, not just despise them in the natural because of what's happened. And that really struck me at that time going, ah, I see. So this isn't spiritual warfare at all. This is a real thing. This guy hates the Japanese, and so he's going to tell his church of you know hundreds of thousands of people that that's where Satan lives, and they're all going to go, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, and that's that's the problem with the authority, isn't it? When someone has such an authority in a space, you, you're going to believe them and because they also use the age-old I heard from God. Um, so I'm sure he didn't come up to the platform and say, Japan is where Satan's throne is, and that's it. He would, wouldn't have left it there. It would have been that it was a message from God and he had been... Well, it was, um, yeah, in the book. He, yeah. he said that God had revealed to him that Satan's throne was in Japan. So for, for even for me reading this, I was like, okay, and it, and it made perfect sense to me. And I remember going around telling people, did you know that Satan's throne is in Japan? All because of Yongi Cho, but, but he's Korean. And, you know, you're going to have to temper. And I learned to do this when I lived in Korea. Anything that Koreans said about Japan, you had to go, okay, let's sort this out and find out how much of it is true and how much of it is just a, a Korean absolute despising of the Japanese and fair enough too. Great food. So have you been to Japan? Yeah, I have, yeah, very briefly. Yeah, I haven't. It's on the list for uh, definitely travel over the next couple of years. Anyway, I digress. It, it, it's frightening. Yongi Cho was a huge part, though, wasn't it? Was it an AOG church? That, yeah, he that... was originally AOG. I, yeah. think, I think he might have broken away in the end. I'm not 100% sure. But he definitely fell into some sort of scandal and yeah. he got disgraced and, you know, went the old uh, Brian Houston Road, I guess. Yeah, he did. I remember it was a, an enormous stadium. I remember seeing pictures of this stadium that they used to have their services and they had like 12 services every Sunday and then they spanned through the week. And you're right, it was, it was ridiculous amounts. I can't, I can't remember the exact number, but he was he was a voice of authority within the AOG church as we were in the fold, definitely for sure. You got any stories from when you were doing spiritual warfare? I mean, we talked about the time you and I went to that magic shop or you and I and a few other guys and we're sort of alpha mailing and, and, and see, that's the other thing too, right? It becomes this sort of alpha mailing, big, tough spiritual warfare. You know, I, I can't fight people to save myself in terms of a real fight. So I'm going to go in and, you know, get into spiritual warfare. And I think I also mentioned that a friend of mine's father loved casting demons out of everyone that came his way. He'd shout at them and push them over and it was a yeah. thing. I, I had such an aversion to that as I've, I've discussed many times. Um, you know, very brief 
very brief time um, in my spiritual journey where I did go, oh, it's demons, demons everywhere. But that literally, I could, I could months, just a few months. Um, now, not stories of, of doing spiritual warfare, but some of the tools for spiritual warfare. And one of them that you may remember and our listeners may remember was Scripture Keys back oh, in the day. Good old Scripture Keys. Yeah, good that was great. So Who wrote it, it? Can you remember? Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm actually not sure. Um, we could we could definitely look it up, and uh, we won't put it in the show notes because we don't want anybody to actually go to it. So, the premise of Scripture Keys was that you could look up an issue, and it would draw you to some scriptures that you could pray to overcome that issue and whatever that issue may be. Now, one of those issues, I remember this was a favourite. I'd look up, and and I'd do it scoffing. I definitely thought it was the most ridiculous concept, Scripture Keys, to be honest. And this is why, bedwetting. Now, I don't say this because I was a bedwetter. I say this because it was one of those ones that stood out. Bedwetting is a an issue that apparently you can pray this and, and it won't come any, any longer. And that's Psalm 32.6, for this shall... Everyone that is godly, pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Or you can go Psalm sixty nine fifteen. Let not the flood a water flood over me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let the pit shut her mouth upon me. And just one more for good measure, Psalm one forty four seven. Send thine hand from above, rid me, and deliver me out of great waters, for the hand of strange from the land sorry or hand of strange children now it's brilliant that's absolutely the f- brilliant the, fl- the floods because that's what happens when you piss the bed you flood yourself Amen. what the fuck what the actual fuck and and i remember this being a significant tool that people used um definitely those those june newman davies by the way was her name june on your june. scripture keys for kingdom living was actually the name of the book um, but this rose to prominence and this was a tool that people used. And you know where it comes from, Brian? Remember, you know, that full armour of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word. So we would pray those scripture verses out and that was the sword of the spirit that would go out. Remember when I told you about that woman that was um, possessed by, I don't know, Satan? Remember that one? <laughs> um, I think that was episode three. Again, our demon and and devils episode. Um, if you haven't heard it, please go back and listen because there's some great stories in there, folks. But she was mocking, you know, apparently. She was laughing at us. And so I got that verse, God shall not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. And I was speaking that word. And in my mind, I was seeing the sword of the spirit come out and, and hit them. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Praise so how about, how about you? Stories. Story well, I mean, I've just told nine, but there was one one in particular um, I remember. <laughs> so there was a friend of ours who had some mental health issues. We didn't know it at the time. We thought he was just wrestling with the devil, right? As as you do, wasn't you're not crazy. You're just possessed. Um, and so we were having a prayer meeting one night, and we we're with this other guy who was right into spiritual warfare and everything. And and he was sort of we were young Christians, and he was leading us in this in this prayer time. As, as we were praying, the, uh, the friend of ours who was, again, a young Christian but also had the mental health issues, he goes, oh, I'm, I'm getting a word from God. I'm getting a word. And we all stopped and looked at him and it was really, really quiet because we'd all just been, you know, rah, 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 thank you, Jesus, you know, just shouting as you do as a penty. And it all went really quiet. And he goes, God's speaking to me. He says, beware 
the Rialto. And we're all like looking at him. <laughs> and, and then he goes, beware the Rialto. Now, the Rialto was a building, a great big building in town. And he used to get freaked out by this building because he thought it was a bit ominous. And so all of a sudden in this prayer time, he's, I guess, praying and asking God, what does it mean? And God said to him, beware the Rialto. So from that point forward, we, at first we were like, oh, beware the Rialto, you know, especially us younger Christians. And then later one of the older Christians came and said, oh, look, I think that was a bit of spiritual spaghetti is what he called it. Um, and then it became a joke for us moving forward. Anytime someone got a bit freaky in a prayer meeting, we'd w- whisper to each other, beware the Rialto. <laughs> yeah, that is gold. And and at the time, the Rialto was the tallest building in the city. So it was probably, yes, um, now it's dwarfed. And, I mean, especially if you're in it and there's some sort of fire threat or something, it would be good to be on your guard around the Rialto. Yeah, oh. but it was just bizarre. But, see, that was it. I mean, this is it again. It's like people taking shit that's going on in their real lives, spiritualizing it turning it into something, you know, spiritual warfare, whatever. There's no, there was no way to know whether any of this was real or, or not, even then, according to our belief system. You just sort of had to trust people and go along with it, didn't you? You, you did. But, but again, it was a lot softer when we're in there. It's still nutty. Like you look back on it and go, it was very nutty. But it was that Kingdom Now model, wasn't it? It was the heaven on earth type thing. It was something that we subscribed to, but not in a way of taking over the world, but being the best that we could for Jesus and bringing God's um, kingdom to earth. And it was, a, I think it was a, a softer, more gentle, less nutty, except the Rialto compared to compared to what we're seeing now and and that's very much that you know remember George W Bush when they invaded um, was it Iraq and he said you you're either with us or you're against us and I think it's very similar when we look at the, the current state of affairs with the seven mountains mandate where they really have had a transference into that the physical realm um, around taking over those seven um, different elements or, or areas on earth. So I think it's definitely turned into something quite different. And if you look at what Jesus said, you know, Jesus said, you know, let what is Caesar's be Caesar's, you know, pay your tax. Some people have, have um, interpreted that as the separation of church and state. It doesn't, it doesn't really, in the new world, that doesn't resonate. And we, we've definitely seen that, as we were talking before, around that this rise of the neo-Pentecostalism, which is very much a warfare model, a physical warfare model. Yeah, for sure. And you can see how it has evolved, you know, like they've just taken a lot of that language and that spiritual language that, that we saw as spiritual language and brought into the real world. But really, if you go back to the Old Testament, it was in the real world. They were actually doing battle, physical battle against, you know, neighbouring tribes and neighbouring nations and that kind of thing. And that's one one thing that I really saw when I started working amongst the Jewish community, that they still see that as literal. They don't see it as spiritual. They they look back at this this talk in the Old Testament of of doing battle um, as it, it was physical. It was it was literal. And now that you know they're in, you know, some of the more fundamentalist Jews that are in fighting Zionists and stuff, fighting against the local nations and stuff, they can be using those verses in a literal physical sense. And so for a lot of these American groups or even this um, Gold Coast mayor, they, they've brought it back into, into reality. But, you know, another thing I wanted to mention, Brian, was I don't remember, and I could be wrong, but I don't remember ever, and even when we were working in welfare, 
you know, in that welfare organization, the Pentecostal welfare organization we were with, ever doing spiritual warfare for the poor and the marginalized in terms of them being free of poverty ever. No, I, I agree. It definitely wasn't a thing. I, I certainly don't remember it. And and if, you know, I think we've spoken about this too, that when we've had, when we're in that church, homeless people come into the church, so they'll either ushered up the back or if they were disruptive, they were ushered out. So it wasn't as if we were trying to change them in any way. It was, <laughs> they were kept at arm's length. But we were trying to, we were trying to win their souls. It's, you know, we yeah. weren't trying to set them free from poverty. That was that, you know, we would feed them with the idea that they would come in and get to know us. Like the, the whole feeding and meeting their needs was just a ruse to build relationship and introduce them to Jesus and they would come to Christ. It wasn't, we weren't genuinely trying to set them free of poverty or set them free of their social ills and everything other than bringing them to Jesus. And, you know, certainly things like drugs and crime and stuff, we certainly wanted them to walk away from that, but it was the power of Jesus. But I guess it is really interesting that our spiritual warfare was all about a decision for Christ, even when we were working amongst the poor and marginalized. It was never about bettering their lives. That was just a a consequence of coming to Christ. Yeah, and you do see it different now, and I know Al Hardy uh, talks about this in her book as well, that in Africa there is definitely we can rescue you from poverty. And you, you do see this in the Western world as well, um, and there's there's different examples in pockets, but I think you see it in a, a really broad spectrum within Africa and the evangelical movements there that come to Christ and your poverty will be abolished. And we see it in, in South America too, in the favelas of, of Brazil. She speaks about that in the book. And, you know, to a certain degree, again, we do see uh, an easing of that poverty in their life. But it's because, I would argue, they're part of a community. They're part of... But it's a consequence. It's not something that they're really trying to fix. At least, you know, the people might come to church wanting to fix that. But the church is not really focused on that. The church is focused on them coming to Christ and joining the community. And then, the you know, the, the, the consequence or the side effect or whatever you want to look is is you know is these other things but that's not really the church's agenda the church's agenda ultimately is to save your soul it is ultimately but i think they use marketing tools that you know come to jesus and you know you'll have greater wealth that you'll have greater uh, i mean yeah i guess so yeah i can see what you're saying you talk about the hyper faith movement you know that still very much exists and the the evangelists in africa and, and south america they they do say you will have You'll have two goats, not, yeah, not one. That's yeah. right. You'll have prosperity. Um, that definitely the prosperity doctrine and gospel is, is alive and well as a tool, I think, to bring people in. But you're right. Ultimately, end goal, save their soul, notch them up in the old salvation bedpost. Mm, for sure. Hey, another thing that stuck out to me was uh, from Elle's book was the idea of the Bethel people doing what's called grave soaking. And what you do is you um, go and lie down or even roll around on the graves of deceased Pentecostals or people that have been anointed, whether it's Smith Wigglesworth or whatever, and you would actually lie on their grave hoping that their anointing would, would flood in into you. And when I was looking at that, I was thinking, oh, that's, that's wacky. And then I realized when I was doing my, one of my thesis at uni in the third century, that's what they would do. They would actually go down. I think I mentioned it in one of the episodes. They would actually go down and have picnics on the graves of the martyrs. 
and the graves of the saints in the idea of this anointing or, you know, blessing or whatever coming through on them. And I was thinking, you know, see, they were doing that in, in the early church and Bethel have actually started doing that again. And it's the same with a lot of those icons of the church, you know, and those, um, you know, the bones of Peter or the hair of Paul's, you know, testicles or whatever, the, the, that kind of stuff that, oh, see, I brought it straight back into the gutter. Sorry about that. But um, they would take um, those what are they called? They're not called icons. What are those? Yeah, I know what you're. Lo- I know what you're saying, but I can't find the word either. Yeah, yeah, those artifacts that from 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 the faith, and and if you touch them, you will be healed. And it's funny because we used to look at that as Pentecostals and think, oh, that's just you know, that's just silly. But actually, it's the it's a more mature or a more developed idea of this anointing. It actually comes from the same thing. If I'm going to touch, you know, the you know, fingernails of St. Peter, I'm going to get his anointing is no more different than when Frank Houston walked past me and grabbed my hand. And I thought, oh, the man of God's touching me, you know, which now means a lot more that it, I'm in the gutter again, but you know, like this is that whole anointing coming through. And, and that was a very much a part of that spiritual warfare again. So, so there's, there's Bethel all up rolling around on the graves of dead people trying to get anointed this is actually an ancient Christian practice. It's nothing. It's nothing new. Yeah, no, it's weird and wacky. I mean, Bethel um, is something that Tara Jean Stevens in season two of Heaven Bent, the whole season was focused on Bethel, which is a church in Redding, California, and I think that I think the town's like ninety-two thousand people, and of that, eleven or twelve thousand go to Bethel. So one in eight people in that town are involved in Bethel Church. And, you know, they they definitely are the pinnacle of weird and wacky Christianity in this world. And some of their, you know, some of that, was it Sean Foyt? Did he come from Bethel? I think he did. He's that guy that led all the, the anti-coronavirus rallies um, in the well, state. Well, if it wasn't him, it was someone just like him, yeah. Yeah, and no, I'm pretty sure it was him and, you know, massive rallies and tried to... Um, basically go against the establishment. And you hear there's, you know, a person interviewed in uh, Bethel, and I think it was in Al's book, you know, it was Laura, I think her name was, very much came out straight away and it was like, you cannot trust doctors, you cannot trust politicians and the like, trust only God and his reps. And then basically went on to say of all these people she follows on Instagram who know the truth. And I think she said in that in that, uh, in that that chapter that it was, uh, you know, you can't trust doctors because ultimately only God can heal. And it's only when God moves through the doctors that people are actually healed. And if he doesn't move through them, they're not kind of thing. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's just madness. And it's really what it does is it leads people to, you know, Bill Johnson, the leader of, of um, Bethel, believe him because he's the voice of God amongst, you know, other leaders of authority there. But but he, much like Yongi Cho back then in the modern world, he is bringing the voice of God. So only what he says and the other leaders is the stuff you should be listening to. Don't listen to any of the stuff of this world because we are not of this world. Yeah, because they're generals in the spiritual warfare, Brian. That's what it is, you know, and and all that militaristic language, which is another sign of a cult, by the way, all that militaristic language where, you know, you keep the chain of command and you follow the orders of the generals and, and all that. And, you know, people are conditioned to believe that these are great men and great women, a lot, lot fewer women, of course, but um, of God, and we should be listening to them and taking their orders. And that militaristic language 
um, and that militaristic idea uh, that that fosters exactly what you're talking about that they are the ones to listen to and they are the ones to follow they've been anointed by god as a general i mean even smith wigglesworth had that sort of language he was god's general or whatever he was yeah that's right and and i think what it does is it gives people a false sense of authority and security in going forward and doing outrageous things like in in bethel uh, sorry in reading they took the the people of bethel almost have an ownership over the unsaved there and they'll do things like hang out in um, hospital wards and just barge into people's rooms and pray over them to a point now where people in that hospital have to put requests to staff there that no one is allowed from Bethel into their room to pray for them. So they have to stop it. But they, they physically barge their way in. And uh, I, I think it was it was that Laura person that was sitting in her car outside the hospital in Reading praying for and praying over people who were going in through the doors and praying for the abolition of, of um, coronavirus, you know, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, it's just, I, I mean, it's a whole new level of madness, but I don't think it's isolated to Bethel. And as we know, you know, there's churches in uh, Australia who subscribe to the Bethel model and they see themselves as an offshoot and a sister church of Bethel. This stuff is definitely alive and well in Australia. I don't think it'll take a foothold like it has in places like America who are definitely a lot more Christianised. Except for the Gold Coast and the, the mayor up there. Well, I was going to say, but there's, you know, pockets like the Gold Coast. So, I mean, I wouldn't say the Gold Coast as a whole, um, but certainly that, that little pocket of, of the mayor and it, it's it's the madness that is coming and seeping through the world. Now, I would be interested to see from our European listeners and our ones in the UK and we know that it's fairly rife in the US, but what's it like over there? Uh, I, I'd imagine it could have a similarity to Australia in that we're more repulsed by that stuff so shall we bind this episode in the name of jesus and be done with it i I think we should and we should loosen the weekend upon us and you know what i want to loosen i want to loosen um and just remind people to think about whether they want to sponsor our promotion you know our our facebook campaign and trying to get this out sorry to bring it back to you people but you know in the name of jesus we're just going to loose that money out of your wallets (laughs) and into our patreon accounts if you don't mind but again if that triggers you i apologize please just ignore but just a call to action folks you could jump off jump on our patreon and just you know give us ten dollars fifteen dollars and then be done you know and we'll expect to see that come back to you you know tenfold a hundredfold pressed down shaking together brother thank you people thank you listeners and until next time take care yeah praise the lord see you next time